As we open this page and we open this verse of Isaiah 118, we're ushered into a courtroom scene. God has already called forth the witnesses in verse 2 when he calls the heavens and earth to give ear. This harkens back to the end of Moses' life. In Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19, he has warned the people of Israel, they've entered into covenant with God, and if they keep the covenant and obey, they will be blessed in the land. But if they disobey and they worship idols, all the curses of the covenant will fall down upon them. Moses has reminded them of this, and he says, I call heaven and earth together as witness against you this day. Well, here God is hearkening back to this. And he's calling Israel into account for their sin. This was a time of great apostasy and idolatry where the people who were called the people of God and who knew the truth, they knew that Yahweh is the one true God and that they are to worship him in the way that he's commanded and to reject all idols. Yet these people have turned away from God. They've rebelled against the Lord and they've forsaken him, as we read in chapter 1. And then all these other sins compound from there. And this is the context and the situation when Isaiah writes to them. The Assyrians have already invaded and taken away captive the Jewish people from the northern kingdom of Israel. And now on the horizon is the impending doom of the world's superpower, the Babylonian Empire, who will come in. And under the judgment of God, the Jews will be carried away into exile because of their sin. And this is just a small foretaste, a small type of the eternal damnation that awaits them because of their rejection of God's truth and the message of Christ. Isaiah lifts up his voice to warn them of this coming judgment and to preach the gospel to them and to call them to repentance and to faith in Christ. Here as the book opens in this courtroom scene, this is a court scene like you've never witnessed before. Who are the witnesses that God puts on the stand? Well, it's the entire created universe, the heavens and the earth. Who's the judge in this courtroom? It's God himself. The prosecutor who is prosecuting the nation of Israel, it's God himself. And the sentence for their crime, if they're found guilty, is Babylonian exile. This is Israel's courtroom. This is their trial. But dear friend, today, this, as as a Christian, you who are in Christ... This reminds you, and it reminds me, of when we were called to account for the guilt of our sin, and God reasoned with us to deal with our sin. For all those of you who are yet without Christ, those who are in your sins, those of you who love your sins, you've not trusted Jesus Christ, this is your courtroom scene. And no, you didn't enter into covenant with God at Mount Sinai like the Israelites did. You're not obligated to God under the Mosaic covenant like they were. 
but yet you are related to God as creature to creator. God is your creator. He's the one that's given you all that you have, and you're accountable to him. You owe to him obedience, and you owe to him to hear the message that he sends and to obey it. And yet all these years, just as all of us lived before we were in Christ, you've lived just like Israel in sin and rebellion against God. So as we open this text, the doors of the courtroom open. You're ushered into this courtroom. This is you on trial, just like Israel is on trial. And with this in mind, I want to preach on the theme of God pleading with guilty sinners. In this courtroom scene, God is pleading with guilty sinners. He's pleading with Israel here in the text. He's pleading with you here this day. And he's pleading concerning two things. First of all, listen to God pleading with guilty sinners concerning your sin guilt. God is pleading with you about your sin guilt. In verse 18, the text words that we read, when God says, come now, let us reason together, he's not just saying, let us think about this and talk back and forth. No, this term to reason is a courtroom term. It's a litigation term. It is a legal dialogue. God would have you enter into dialogue with him today, just as Israel did, and talk about the guilt of your sin. Throughout the verses leading up to verse 18, he's expounded what Israel's sin was. It was a manifold sin guilt. A manifold sin guilt, all kinds of different sin that sprang from this one sin of rebelling against Yahweh and from turning their back on him. Their sin was stubborn and ignorant sin. You see it in verse 3. He says, The ox knows his owner and the donkey, its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. This is what he's telling them. They should have known that Yahweh is the true God. They should have worshipped him alone. They should have known that every good thing they have has come from him. And yet they're willfully ignorant of this, so much so that they're worse than a dumb beast, a farmyard animal. You might have spent some time, you might have visited a, a farm. And if you have, you know that no matter how dumb that animal is, no matter, no matter how unintelligent the cattle are, unthinking beasts. They don't have a rational soul like you as a human. They can't reason. They're just brute beasts. And yet when that farmer walks outside and he rattles that feed pail, that metal feed pail, and he begins to scoop their feed and they, they hear that familiar sound, they see him coming, they hear his voice, they hear him. Maybe he whistles or he calls to them. You'll see cattle start trotting in from everywhere. The, the old dumb donkey, like it talks about here, even he knows where his meal comes from. And God is telling them, you're dumber and more ignorant than that beast. 
because God has given you every good blessing. He's blessed you with every breath of air that you've ever breathed, every meal, every drink of water, every good thing in life, every hour of every day has come from God. You've far more than this heard the message of Christ, how that he is the bread of life. He's the only spiritual food to satisfy your soul. And yet you haven't come to him. You know who your owner is. You know who it is that's sending you these good things, and yet you've not come to him. Oh, what stubborn and ignorant sin, willful ignorance. He reproves them and reasons with them, and he reasons with you concerning the rebellious nature of sin. Do you see how rebellious their sin was? Verse 4, alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel, and they have turned away backward. Oh, dear friend, you're no mere innocent victim of sin, as if some people think about the sinner is being like a stray kitten that has no home and it's shivering in the cold and it's, it's poor and pitiful and then God brings in that poor kitten and gives it a home. No, Israel and you, dear friend, are not the, simply the innocent victim of sin or a mere one who has been rendered weak. But Scripture teaches that we are active, hostile, enemy insurgents against God, ungodly, anti-God, against God. Every thought, every word, every deed, every day of your entire life, dear sinner, has spent, been spent as an active, hostile, enemy insurgent against God, just like Israel. He points out that their sin is a corrupting sin, verses 5 to 6. Why should you be stricken again? You'll revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They've not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Sin is like a spreading disease. The analogy he gives here is of someone with a serious skin disease, maybe like leprosy in this day, that deadly skin disease. You can imagine from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, oozing sores, stinking, rotten, corrupting sores all throughout your body. This is the corrupting nature of sin, how that from your very thoughts and your mind down to your feet, the actions and your hands, everything that you do, everything you think and feel, as a sinner, is corrupt and against God, just like Israel's sin. As God reasons concerning your sin guilt, he reasons about sin as being destructive. It's destructive sin. Verses 7 to 10, your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. 
Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Sin promises pleasure. Sin promises good. You you commit this sin. You worship this idol. You indulge the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and sin promises you. I'll give you life and prosperity and joy. But what do you find? What did Israel find? What is God declaring to them here concerning their sin? That it is destructive and they are so destroyed by sin. They're so bound for destruction that he likens them to Sodom and Gomorrah, that evil and perverse city-state complex where they were so evil that God rained fire and brimstone down out of heaven and turned them into ashes. And I visited the historical site that they believed these cities were there in Israel by the Dead Sea, and it's nothing but a desolate plain until this day covered with brimstone, sulfur. Nothing grows there. Utter destruction. This is where sin leads, dear friend. It's where it led them. It's where you're heading. It's all it will leave you with is eternal destruction. As God reasons with them and with us concerning sin guilt, he points out that their sin is hypocritical sin. As if to add insult to injury in verses 11 to 17, God has told them to repent, to turn from their sins, and to trust in him. And very clearly, as we'll see throughout Isaiah and the other prophets, they're to turn from their sins to Jesus Christ who is to come. But instead of doing this, they do religious ceremonies. They go through the motions to try to please God with their righteous works. Look at verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. And then he invites them, come and have your sins washed away. All God has required is that they turn from their sins to Jesus Christ. And instead, what do they do but offer up empty prayers empty sacrifices, empty religious ceremonies instead of doing what God has commanded. God has commanded repentance and they render empty ceremonies. When you first become aware of your sin guilt, one instinctive thing to do 
is to start doing certain things, to try to deal with the guilt, trying to maybe say more prayers. Or maybe you try to do better at, at listening when you're in public worship, better listening to the sermon. You should listen to the sermon, and you should pray. But God has not commanded you to do better prayers or to do better giving or to do better listening or any of these things. What God has commanded of you, dear friend, is to turn from your sins to Jesus Christ now and trust in him. And Israel, and just as we have done, did the opposite. This is a manifold sin guilt. Here, as God reasons with you concerning the guilt of sin, it's a serious sin guilt. He teaches us here that all our sins, for those of you who are outside of Christ, all your sins are like a scarlet stain, like a crimson red stain. Imagine going to a wedding, and you know how beautiful it is and what a wonderful scene it is when that, when that bride comes walking down the aisle in that beautiful white dress, that sparkling, clean white dress. But imagine if that bride was walking into the building and there was a man painting on side of the building on a scaffolding and a big bucket of red paint dumped down the front of that white wedding dress and stained the entire thing. There's no way she can remove it. There's no way she can clean the stain out. Imagine the embarrassment. Imagine the turmoil that that would cause. It would ruin the entire wedding ceremony, wouldn't it? Well, our first parents, Adam and Eve, ruined the entire human race. Our father, Adam, ruined us all. God had created him pure and holy and righteous. And you know how that in his sin, he brought that crimson sin stain into his own soul, the, the guilt of his own sin. And we in Adam sinned against God. His sin is counted to us, and we have willfully committed sins as well. This is the picture of the seriousness of our sin, and it's permanent. It's a permanent and an irreversible stain, this scarlet stain. The prophet Jeremiah talks about this in Jeremiah 2.22, for though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord. It's a permanent and irreversible sin stain. Many times when somebody hears this message of God's holy law and realizes they're guilty before God and their conscience is awakened, they begin to do things, go serve in the soup kitchen, clean up my life and stop this outward sin or bad habit and, and start this good habit and try to do better things and try to soothe their conscience, try to remove the stain. The prophet Jeremiah has told us we could scrub with the strongest soap. Soap of religious works, the tears of our own repentance, all of these things. And yet you look at the garment of your soul and it's still stained down to the core with this red crimson stain of guilt. 
It's permanent and irreversible. Nothing you can do to take away one of your sins, and nothing you can do to remove any of the guilty stain. It's an incriminating stain. It marks you as guilty before God. I heard about or read about a bank robber in Newark, New Jersey, who had gone into the bank. He had demanded the money from the teller. She gave him a duffel bag full of money, but within in that bag full of cash, she put a dye capsule full of red dye. And when that bank robber walks out the front door of the bank and he's walking down the street to make his escape, you can watch on surveillance video that red dye capsule in that bag explodes and a red cloud of dye goes all the way down the sidewalk. It goes all over the criminal. It goes all over the bag and the money that was in the bag. In the news, the police put out a bulletin for everybody to be watching for this thief. How will you know who he is? He'll be the one with that red Die with that red stain that marks him. Dear friend, you realize you're marked before God and there's no way to hide it. There's no way to get away with it. You might feel like that guy thinking you're getting away. No, you're not getting away with it. Scripture tells us in Hebrews 4.13 that there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Scripture tells us that at the last day, the final judgment, when you'll stand there at that great day, dear sinner, John says in Revelation 20, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Every sin, every thought is recorded, and God will bring it up against you at the judgment day, and you are marked with this guilt before God. You say, oh, that doesn't bother me that bad. Really? Does it not bother you? Could you imagine right now, you've heard they're talking about trying to make a, a chip, an implant chip that you could get in your head, a computer chip that, that could interact with your brain. Who knows if they'll be able to do it, but they're trying. Well, imagine right now, if you realize without your knowledge there had been a chip installed in your brain, and this evening, right now it's 4 p.m., this evening at 6 p.m. on international television on prime time, your entire life, from this moment all the way back to your birth, your entire life, every thought, Every action, everything you've seen, everything you've looked at, every word you've spoken, every word you've listened to, every desire of your heart is all going to be broadcast in front of the entire world at 6 p.m. this evening. Would it bother you? Would that bother you? Would that make you feel uncomfortable? Would you be scrambling however you could to get that chip out of your head somehow to stop the broadcast? Would you be terrified? If so, why? You know why? Because you know you're a guilty sinner before God. Well, imagine that a thousand times more so at the judgment day when God really is going to review your entire life, everything, everything, nothing hidden, everything reviewed, everything brought to judgment and you'll find that this sin stain, this guilty stain, is there 
God knows it, and he'll bring you to account for it just like he did Israel here. This is God's reasoning with you concerning your sin guilt. Do you hear him? Do you hear God pleading with you about your sin guilt? Thank God it doesn't end there, because secondly, God is pleading with you today concerning the forgiveness of your sin guilt. God comes to the end of this courtroom litigation in verse 18, and that's when he gives this invitation. God does what no judge will ever do, what no prosecutor will ever do. You know what a prosecutor is, dear children? It's that lawyer in the courtroom who has one job, and that is to bring up all your crimes and make sure you go to jail for those crimes or you're executed for those crimes, to make sure your guilt is proved. Everybody knows you're guilty and you get the full penalty of the law. That's what the prosecutor is there to do. No prosecutor does what God does here, and that is he invites you to come and have the free forgiveness of all of your sins. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They're red like crimson. They shall be as wool. Listen as God reasons with you about the forgiveness of your sin guilt. Israel here had no defense attorney, nobody to defend them. God provides one himself, and Isaiah tells us about this later on, about this one who will come. As, as God has said here, your sins, though they're like crimson, they'll be as wool. When you think of wool, you should think sheep or lamb. When you think lamb, you should think Isaiah 53, Jesus Christ, the Messiah who is to come as a lamb led to the slaughter, so opened he not his mouth. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a Christ-wrought forgiveness. Something they couldn't do. You can't remove the guilty stain. But God has promised that he is well able and that he will remove it to all those who come to him in Christ. And this is exactly what Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For me, he made him, that is Christ, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And there is our Lord Jesus went to the cross. He took our sins upon him, pin it all on me, take all their, their crimes, take all of their sins and pin them on me. He takes our place. And he provides for us the perfect righteousness that we need before God. Oh, no, you can't do it, but Christ is well able. It's a purifying forgiveness he said these scarlet sins will be white as snow. He promises that if you come to him, all scarlet sin stains will be washed away. Zechariah the prophet tells us later how they'll be washed away. In Zechariah 13, in that day, in that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. And there as Jesus Christ 
hung upon the cross, and that soldier pierces his side with the spear, and blood and water flowed out. That blood and water is for the cleansing of guilty sinners to wash away every stain. Because Jesus Christ shed his scarlet crimson blood at the cross, you can have every crimson stain washed away, dear sinner. Paul mentions this washing of, from sin in 1 Corinthians 6 where he has told them, he's named this list of 10 guilty sinners, 10 kinds of lifestyle, everything from adulterers to thieves to sodomites. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed You're washed, Paul says, but you're sanctified, but you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This is the washing that Isaiah is speaking of here. Like John said in Revelation 1, that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the rulers, the kings of the earth. It is him who has loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Every one of us who are here who are Christians, we are here because Jesus Christ washed us from our sin in his own blood. And you can know this cleansing as well, dear sinner, the moment you trust in Jesus Christ. No doubt you've heard of the Apache war chief Geronimo. You may know that after years of the U.S. Army trying to track down and trying to defeat him and his warriors. They finally did, and they finally captured Geronimo and his warriors who had wreaked so much havoc. They had raided not only settlers but other tribes, and they'd committed all kinds of acts of torture and cruelty and all kinds of violence through the years. And finally, the Army caught them. They became prisoners of war there near Lawton, Oklahoma, which was Indian territory at that time. Well, there were Dutch Reformed missionaries there who had been preaching the gospel, and some of Geronimo's men, some of his warriors, had become Christians, and he saw such a change in their lives that he was interested in hearing the gospel himself, and he came and heard the preaching. One day in his older age there as a prisoner of war, Geronimo approached the Dutch Reformed missionaries And through a translator, he communicated to them, and he said, I'm full of sins, and I walk alone in the dark. And I've heard you missionaries have a way of getting sin out of the heart. And I want to take that better path and hold it till I die. Well, Geronimo professed faith in Christ and was baptized But he came to a realization that he was under the guilt of sin and that in the gospel there is a way of being cleansed from that sin. Oh, dear friend, this is the good news to you this day. God has a way in Christ, the way, the only way of getting sin out of the heart. This is a purifying forgiveness It's a beautifying forgiveness. He says these crimson stains, these scarlet sin stains will be white as snow. 
Maybe you've seen what it is when there's a fresh snowfall, and it doesn't matter how ugly the backyard is. There may be mud puddles. There may be trash. There may be dead grass out there. It's so ugly, but after that snowfall, you look outside, and all you see is that beautiful, pure white snow. You look and look, and all the ugliness is covered. For those of you who are in Christ, I remind you, Blessed is the man whose iniquities are purged and whose sin is covered. And in the new covenant, when God receives you, dear believer, yes, he's omniscient. He knows your sins. But when he receives you, he receives you as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ. And when you come before God in Christ. You have nothing to be ashamed of. You have nothing to hide. You have nothing to incriminate you or render you guilty before God. It's all dealt with in Christ. And when God looks upon you and receives you, he receives you as covered by the pure righteousness, the white robes of the righteousness of Christ. And old dear sinner, he offers this to you in Christ to cover all your iniquities. As Paul tells us in Galatians 3, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Oh, dear friend, put on Christ today. The pure white robes of his righteousness This is not only a beautifying forgiveness, but it's also a transforming forgiveness. Up till now, we've considered this forgiveness objectively, what is outside of you, your guilt that's rendered in God's court, and the pronouncement when you trust in Christ, God pronounces you righteous in Christ. He takes all of your sins away and credits you with the perfect righteousness of Christ. This is all outside of you in God's court. But it doesn't stop there. God does also a work of transformation in you. He does a work in you. He says here in verses 16 and 17, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, etc., telling them to turn from the evil of their ways and to do righteousness. You might say, well, I've tried to stop sinning. I've tried to stop. I've tried to repent. And I can't. I can't quit sinning. I can't say no to sin. You're exactly right. You can't. You absolutely can't. Just like the Ethiopian can't change his Skin, Scripture tells us the leper cannot change his spot. You cannot change your heart. But this is the good news of the gospel, is that in Christ, God will give you a new heart and a new spirit. He will put his spirit within you so that you can repent, so that you can turn from your wicked ways and do righteousness. God's not waiting on you to get yourself a new mindset and a new heart and then come to Christ. No, he's inviting you to come to Christ now. He'll give you the heart you need to repent. 
He will do the work in you you can't do. It's what he said in Ezekiel in the New Covenant, Ezekiel 36. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my statutes to do them. God will do the work you can't do. Just look to Christ. Just look to him and be saved. God will do the rest in and through you, and you'll realize God even gave you the faith, and he brought you to life to even cause you to trust in Jesus Christ. This is an immediate forgiveness. He says, come now and let us reason together. God is not talking to Israel here about something that's to be done next week. He's not talking to you today about something for next week. Now is the day of salvation. He's not saying, come in an hour. He's not saying, come to me tomorrow. No, he's saying, come right now, right now. Right now. Dear sinner, right now, look to Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness of sins. It's an immediate forgiveness. The moment you look to him, God forgives and God credits you with the righteousness of Christ and you find out that you are united to Christ. It's an unlimited forgiveness. There is no guilty sin stain too deep. Even scarlet sins, crimson sins, he will wash away. Even Sodom-like sins. God calls the rulers of Israel the most offensive thing. He could call them here rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah because that's what they were acting like. You know the perverse nature of that sin, of that city. How wicked and evil is some of the most evil people in all of Scripture. It is one of the main examples of God's judgment upon perverse sin, the raining down of fire and brimstone about Sodom. But yet God says to you, rulers of Sodom, come, let us reason together. Your sins will be washed away. There is no sin stained too deep. And this is a guaranteed forgiveness. He says, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They're they're like crimson. They shall be like wool. This is a firm promise from God that you can trust in. You might say, well, I've asked God to save me. I've asked him. I've, I've trusted in Christ, and yet I'm unsaved, and you know, I'm willing, I'm willing to repent, I'm willing to believe, but I don't think God's willing to save me. Oh no, that's not the case, friend. It's not God's fault. You won't be able to stand before God on judgment day and say, God, I'm, I'm lost because of you. Oh no, every sinner will confess everything hell-worthy about me, everything concerning my eternal sentence is of my own doing, and I deserve it. Dear friend, today, God is willing, God is ready to save all who look to him in Christ. He's promised, and one of those places is Jeremiah 31, 34, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. I encourage you, seek the Lord. 
Look to Jesus Christ. And the moment you really look at Jesus Christ by faith, that moment, God will pardon all your sins. He's promised. And God cannot lie. And he promised this before the world began. So in light of all this today, dear Christian, I remind you that all of this glorious salvation is yours in Christ. All of these benefits are yours in Christ. The cleansing of sin, reconciliation to God, free justification, God transforming you into a new creation by the power of his spirit. All of this is yours freely in Christ. I encourage you to stand in it and walk in it. And based on this, since God has purged away every guilty sin stain, then, dear Christian, there is no place for you to sin. There's no place for you to continue in sin. There's no place to be comfortable with sin. To just indulge and let yourself go and continue in it. Oh no, God has cleansed you. And I encourage you by the grace and help of his spirit to live in a way that reflects, oh yes, imperfectly. Yes, with many flaws all through this life, but in a way that reflects that Christ is your righteousness and that by his spirit, he is working in and through you to cause you to repent and to believe all the way to glory. Stand in this and put sin to death and live unto righteousness. Dear Christian, this truth today teaches us not to live under the guilt of past sin. If God has purged every sin stain, if he's received us in Christ, then as Paul reasons in Romans 8, there's nothing Satan can do to separate you from the love of God. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing your worst enemy can do to bring back and to incriminate you even with one guilty sin stain. Oh, dear Christian, don't beat yourself up over sin that's passed, that's confessed and cleansed and covered. Don't allow the devil to bring up and rob you of your joy. Look at what God's done for you in Christ. Look at what a mighty salvation. Look at what a mighty promise as God summoned you into his courtroom not to condemn you, but to give you free pardon and justification in Christ. He has given you his very spirit who dwells within you, the very spirit of God, and you yourself are part of that one body, the temple of the holy and living God who lives in you. There's nothing that any sin can do to separate you from your Savior, past, present, or future. Live in the joy of this, dear Christian. Keep returning daily for the experience, the subjective experience of confessing your sins to God and knowing and being reminded and assured that your sins are forgiven. Until that day in glory where you'll never confess another sin again because you'll never sin again. You will never feel one guilty feeling, never, ever. You will never feel guilt again in glory. And pressing forward in the hope of this day, walk in this victory, this forgiveness, this free pardon that Christ has purchased for you. 
that the Father has ordained for you before the foundation of the world, that the Spirit is applying to you now. Dear sinner, I've sought to plead with you and show how God pleads with you today about your sin and the forgiveness of it. You might say, well, doesn't God say I have to repent to come to him? Verses 16 and 17 and then verse 19, I have to be willing and obedient. I'm not willing, I'm not obedient. Yes, 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 you must repent. You must be willing and obedient. But God's not saying become willing and obedient and then come to Christ and I'll save you. Oh, no, he's saying look to me right now. Look to Jesus Christ right now, and in looking to him, God will produce the willingness and obedience in you. Just look to Christ. And if you are looking to Christ now, God has already begun his work in you, dear friend. You may say, well, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready to come to Christ. I'm not ready to... Come to God for this cleansing from sin. Well, God's ready. And God commands and invites you, unready sinner, to come to him now. Come to him unready. Look to Jesus Christ. God is serious about cleansing you from your sin. He is earnest and serious in pleading with you. Come, let us reason together. God said this for a purpose. He's speaking to you through the preaching of his word. He means it. He's promised he'll cleanse every sin if you come to him in Christ. Come now. Come to him now. Look to Christ now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for giving to us Christ and all his benefits, we who are the least deserving. I confess that I have not the ability or the capacity to adequately convey and declare your grace and your love and mercy to us in Christ, but I pray something of the truth of your law and gospel would be used by your spirit to bring sinners to you and to encourage and help your people. I ask you now in Jesus' name, amen.